Welcome to another episode on the Phoenix Rising podcast, journeys of descending into the mysteries and rising from the roots. I am your host, Lisa Hillier, spiritual mentor and priestess. I have guided hundreds of women through my online courses, Patreon, and one-to-one mentorship. Guided hundreds of women into the mysteries within them to rise rooted into their sovereign selves. And today I have Autumn Sky on the show with me. Autumn Sky's meticulous and poignant paintings weave together refined realism, iconic symbolism, and etheric energetics. She teaches and exhibits worldwide and otherwise paints and thrives on the beautiful sunshine coast of British Columbia. Considering herself immensely blessed, Autumn Sky strives to support others through creative empowerment and their perpetuation of inspiration. This episode is full of so many nuggets and wisdom and depth. I can't wait to sink into the medicine with you. Welcome, Autumn Sky. I'll use both names. Welcome to the podcast. And we're going to start with the question of what has brought you to the work, the medicine, the art that you are offering the world today. What is the the journey to your medicine been? Well, thank you for having me, Lisa. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here. I'm excited for this conversation together. And yeah, um, just to share this incredible art journey uh, with you from my perspective. And uh, it's been a lifelong journey. Honestly, I actually don't remember a moment where I started and stepped onto the path. I feel like my earliest memories were memories of deep knowing and a deep drive, a tangible mission that I was here, even as, as like two, I can, I have vivid memories of being two and three and knowing that I was here to make art and to share it with many people. And that that was my part in this world. And I didn't get too hung up in questioning what that would look like. As I grew up, I didn't have this concept of when I grow up, I'm going to be an artist. It was just always what I was here to do and what I was and what I was living. I very much think of art as, um, as an action, not as a noun. It is an act and a process and um, a way of living. If you are making art, you are an artist. Uh, I think a lot of people get hung up on this idea of, oh, one day I'll be an artist or when I grow up or when I'm trained or when I produce this many paintings or reach this skill level, I'll be an artist. Um, but for me, it's always been the act of art making that makes the artist. And, um, and so in everything I've done, I've tried to bring that, that feeling of creativity and inspiration and trust in the process, whether it's cooking or dancing or event production or um, styling my home or um, making music and singing. It's, it's always been that and painting has been my main focus. Um, Always drawing visual art and I was never told not to. That is my biggest blessing. 
I was always encouraged. I come from a very musical and artistic family. So it was recognized very early on that I was enthusiastic for art and uh, for drawing. And so there were always paper and pencils available to me and, um, and always the space and encouragement and recognition of that in my family, which I'm, mm. I'm so, so grateful. I love that. I love that you were attuned to your gifts at such a young age. And I feel like for a lot of humans on the planet, they start to kind of become aware of their gifts within, but somehow society shuts them down. Like you should maybe do this. You should maybe become a nurse or that, that was what was kind of placed onto me. We'll say by, um, by my upbringing, like get a real job, Mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote kind of thing. And I love that your gifts were always um, encouraged and celebrated and given the space to really flourish. And did Mm -hmm. you always live in BC then? We're both Canadians. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I was born in Nova Scotia and spent a lot of time moving back and forth across the country. My parents moved a lot just because that's what they did. And as they separated, they also both continued to move. So I spent, ended up spending my summers all in the Rockies in Yoho National Park, uh, in the heart of the Rocky Mountains. And, um, and then my winters with my mom uh, during the school year, uh, whether it was Ontario or back to Nova Scotia, um, but more so, most so on the Sunshine Coast, uh, she moved um, out to BC when I was just starting high school. And then I finished high school here and came back after a few years of traveling and realized that it's really beautiful. And now I've been here for the last 16 years and 20 years. I don't know. It's just, uh, yeah, it's just such a beautiful place to call home. Yeah. And, and I, you spoke of how you were, you were pushed into getting a real job and, I, I want to mention too that I I do not take my childhood for granted for a second mm. ever. I am so grateful and I know that it's so rare. And so I've found actually that um, a big part of my creative mission uh, on this planet in this life is to support and empower others in their creativity and to try to be a cheerleader to them where they might not have had one growing up or in their schooling or in their own mind, we internalize these voices from childhood and from growing up saying, you know, don't do that. It's a waste of time. Don't waste paper, get a real job. That's, uh, you know, your sister's the creative one or whatever story there is, we internalize those. And it's really, it's, that's the most common story is actually a, a, a story of creative disempowerment and it's heartbreaking and it's, it's the norm, unfortunately, but that's what we're here to do. Yeah. Yeah. Create something different. And so with that, um, cause what I know from your work is the beautiful paintings I've seen on like Alana Fairchild's Oracle deck. And I was in a shop in Gibson's and your paintings were everywhere and they're so, so beautiful. And so is there, or are there other facets to your work where there's like mentorship and working with humans to instill that creativity or to allow that creativity to flourish? Yeah, I've been teaching for the last 12 years. Um, At least a couple times a year, I teach seminars, workshops, or retreats um, ranging from three to 10 days. 
Um, and they've been all over the world. I've mostly worked with Bella Retreats, um, doing retreats uh, internationally of the, we called it soul portraits when we first started. And um, that's been a beautiful, a beautiful series to do. We've done eight of them. And then I've also worked with the Vienna Academy of Visionary Art and taught um, summer intensives in Italy and uh, winter programs in Austria. And uh, that's been incredible as well. And now I'm excited to anchor more into my home and into this beautiful land uh, that my husband and I bought on the Sunshine Coast and to start to bring students here to me to be able to um, really set the space and also to nourish this community and support the community and to not have to travel so much. Uh, it's such a beautiful part of the world. So really being able to set that space and then take people on these journeys of self-inquiry and of technique development and um, really encourage people to pay attention to the ways that we show up in the creative process mm. as an echo or a template or a reflection of how we show up in life. They are so often one and the same. And they, you know, whether we're really hard on ourselves or whether we don't, whether we fear commitment, whether we um, are perfectionists or um, lack seriousness or, you know, it's like these, these extremes that, that we can walk with in life um, really, really show up in the painting process or in any creative, creative process. Um, but especially in the painting process, it literally becomes a mirror sitting in front of you. Mm, I love that. I love how art can be such a reflection of what's going on in our inner realms. How has the land um, influenced your work? Has there been medicine that's come from living on the Salish Sea or just the earth in general? How has that influenced in your, your work? Because there's so many layers to the art that you're offering. Well, I've, I've painted and um, yeah, I've painted all over the world and many countries on many lands and many environments. Um, and it definitely does influence it often. Uh, it, the landscape participates in the color choices and um, in the very like alchemical and physical um, water of, that's added to the paint or the moisture in the air or the sun on the canvas all of those things really participate in the painting process. And sometimes it's, it's really amusing. Like if I'm painting in the tropics and during the day it's hot and the sun is beating down and the paint dries instantly. And then as soon as the sun drops, all the humidity just falls and my painting won't dry mm. <laughs> because I work in acrylic. It's really uh, susceptible to the atmosphere of the, the water that's around me in the air. Um, so that's really interesting. And then on a deeper level, very much um, uh, just feeling into the land, feeling into the animals of the land, uh, the spirit of the land, the indigenous of the land, the, mm. the, just the environment that I am surrounded with and embedded in 
really, really comes out in the painting. Um, and not necessarily in a very um, obvious way. It sometimes can be in an abstract way um, or a subtle energetic way, but it really, really is embedded. And even if I bring that painting back home to finish in my studio, it feels like it's very much born of that land. And here in the temperate rainforest of coastal British Columbia uh, on the Salish Sea, surrounded by these magnificent cedars and um, with rivers and streams and moss and ferns and the ocean and the seagulls and the eagles and the bears and all of these creatures um, and um, landscapes really play into my work as well. Not just in a visual representation, but also in, in a heart space. There's a lot of my work, um, many of my pieces take on more of a, a conservationist perspective or like um, trying to speak to some to something um, that's going on, like whether it's old growth logging or desertification um, and how as humans, we what we do to the land, we are doing to ourselves. Um, and so I'm often subtly or obviously in my work, trying to make those connections and trying to draw that, that parallel and that metaphor between the land and ourselves and our relationship to nature as something apart from us rather than a part of us which is what it is we are we are nature mm. and when we when we cut ourselves off from it you know it's it's um it's it's a disease that that permeates all all aspects of society and so that's what my work is really i i feel like it's I, I want people to feel at home in their bodies and on the land when they look at my work in some way, if I can offer that as a reflection. Mm, that's beautiful. And I'm just newly to the Sunshine Coast. I've just been here for two months, but there is such an enchantment in the forest and the land speaks so beautifully like there's there's just such an energy and potency to every place on the planet but there is something really special about the rainforest and the aliveness that you feel like definitely connected to the fairy realms mm -hmm. and I just always think of you know the myths of I feel a strong connection to like the Celtic lands here and the, the moss and just deeply rooted in the soil that is so, so present. And when you were speaking to your art, really reconnecting people to nature, that's such a beautiful gift on the planet because we see that deep connection. You know, when I think about my previous life, I was so disconnected from my body, from the earth. And when you start to connect to nature, you want to stand for her and protect her and work in harmony with her as opposed to being separate from her and kind of just building on her and rising above. It's like that deep descent into her for anybody that feels like that 
deep connect or disconnection from the earth, from nature? Are there any practices that have been really helpful on your journey to start to reconnect to, to the earth, to nature, to the inner realms, to the, the divinity within? Um, well, I was, I was really, <coughs> excuse me. I was really blessed with a childhood growing up in the woods. Mm. I've actually only lived in, in a city once oh, was wow. after I, after I left high school, I um, lived in Calgary for a couple of years. That's where I just moved from. Okay, <laughs> which is more of a massive sprawling suburb than a city. But uh, I, had a, I had some fun years there regardless. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was great. It served a purpose. Um, and then besides that, I lived in a couple towns when I was growing up. Um, and then, like I said, I spent my summers with my dad, which was in field, which is 250 people. It's hardly a town. It's on the side of a mountain along the, the kicking horse river. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and then the rest of the time it was down a two mile dirt road, um, 20 minutes north of the closest town or traveling on road trips with my dad and going through the the national parks of, of the States or down to Baja. Um, and so it really was, I was always in nature. And so I, I feel like I sort of have that leg up in that I, I didn't have to learn to reconnect. It's mm-hmm. more that I maybe took for granted how connected I already was and how my nervous system was already attuned to it. Um, and to the point that I actually, I envied my friends that when I was living in Ontario in, in grade four and five, I envied friends that lived in their big mansions with their five widescreen TVs and their, you know, their wall to wall carpets. And we just lived in a old little farmhouse that my family was renovating. And, and we had the 40 acres in the back that were just our playground and that was super fun, but I was like, oh, I just, I want to like live a normal life and be fancy. And like, but I, I ate granola and home-baked bread and, and uh, grew up with an outhouse. And so it was really <laughs> far from my reality to have TV, let alone five widescreen TVs in my house. And so I really, I spent a lot of time outside. I made a lot of forts and played in the stream and played on the beach and and hung out under trees drawing and talking to my dolls and my imaginary friends and fairies and making cities for my for my little cars whatever mm-hmm. dinky cars that I was playing with and it just really active imagination out in the world and in this fresh air that now I I realize I live only 15 minutes away from where I spent um, all of high school. Mm. And I really realize now how blessed I was and how blessed I am to breathe this incredibly clean air and how it's becoming more and more of a rarity in the world to have this clean air. And like for the last two days, it's been a little bit smoky here from the, the fires in Washington and, and up Butte Inlet and we've all been feeling it. And, and um, 
the fact that that's only a couple times a year that we experience that and then we're, we're <laughs> whine about it and, oh it's so smoky I can you know I can feel in my lungs and it's it's just such a privilege to live in this beautiful area and to be able to walk amidst incredibly old trees and to swim in the ocean without any thought of contamination or residue and to drink the water that runs out of my tap to be able to turn on a tap let alone drink the water and uh yeah so (laughs) come back to your question how to reconnect or how to feel ourselves embedded in that environment I think comes down to those simple things Mm. take a moment with that glass of water if you are blessed enough to be able to turn on your tap and drink it, take a moment with that. And if you're not, is there somewhere that you can go and sit with water, whether it's drinkable or swimmable or not, and to really appreciate it because water is perfect, no matter what is mixed with it. Those water molecules are always pure water molecules. And they might be contaminated and mixed with other things that, you know, that may or may not be able to be filtered out. But I truly believe in the resilience of this planet and especially of the ocean. Saline solution being one of the most healing substances that we know. Mama's got this. And so if we can go and sit with water or sit with a tree, sit with a house plant, whatever is available to you, sit with your cat, sit with the sun on your face and just pay attention to the subtleties. I think that that will bring us into the present moment in, in, tangi- in a tangible way that we can maybe start to notice the feeling of our skin mm-hmm. on our skin when we touch our own fingers on one hand or the way that our body is sitting in the chair and the way that the air comes into our lungs and maybe we're not taking full breaths or the way that the sun is warming one side of your face, like really paying attention to our own tactile awareness and experience within our environment that is what contains the most information of how to reconnect with nature because it's through these five senses. So can you hear water running or birds singing or wind in the trees? Can you feel it? Can you smell it? And can you see it? And really, yeah. Can you taste that water, the clean, clean, beautiful water? No matter what is mixed in with it, maybe you've got, you know, juice crystals mixed into it. That's still perfect, pristine water in there. And can we appreciate it and pay attention as we interact with it? Beautiful. Felt like that really slowing down and being present with what is exactly meeting you in each moment as opposed to maybe being on the hamster wheel and disconnected, just going through the motions. It's like, I'm just going to pause and slow down and be 
be exactly where I am for you. Cause I think it's fair to say that we're at a big crossroads on the planet. We're going through the birth canal, so to speak. And yeah, we're just, we're, we're at a pivotal moment. <laughs> I don't know how, to, how else to say that on the world, in the world right now, what do you, what is, what is your dream of where, where the earth, where we as a civilization are, are going or heading towards? Yeah. What a ride. <laughs> <laughs> It's like our souls were in the oneness and we're like, Ooh, that looks interesting. <laughs> Throw me in coach. And Oh man. Yeah. Uh, never a dull moment. No. Nope. And, and really truly, I believe that we've chosen to be here that we've each chosen in some way to incarnate at this time. Um, it just is so interesting and absurd and, predictable and surprising and laughable and terrifying. It's all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and through it all, I, I feel deep in my being the resilience of faith. I, I feel that on the grand story arc of earth or if we want to be human centric the grand storyline of humanity we're at this site this the climax of the story remember in grade six telling teaching us how to like write stories write good stories and you learn about all the plot points and get to the climax and it feels like the hero is going to fail. Mm. And it's just like against all odds, there is the new dawn. And, and so I feel like we're at that, or maybe we're still gearing up because man, it feels like we're still, things are still winding up. There is good news though. Mm. If we look for it, there is so much good news in the world. So many beautiful things happening, inventions and healing and breakthroughs and people discovering their creativity and babies being born and farm gardens being planted and, you know, trees being saved from clear cut. But it's so easy to focus on the pain. Mm. And, uh, as I know, I've, I've written many songs and I know it's way easier to write a sad song than it is to write an, a happy song. And I think that that's the human condition is that we have this pain body and this fascination with pain because we learn so much from it. And, and we can get stuck in that. And we, they know that headlines and news sell much easier when they're yeah. tragic and full of fear and, and that's just good marketing. So if we can be aware of that and seek out the good news, like look in your local community, look in your yard, look in your family, where is the good news? It's, it's everywhere, even through the heartbreak and heartache, because there's always going to be that too. 
there's always this storyline echoing that's like against all odds love prevails mm. and so i believe that i i really though my my mind might flip flop and i might get frustrated or bewildered usually bewildered is sort of where i sit of just like the the like really mm-hmm. oh really <laughs> that's usually where i sit okay um so even though my mind might do that my body and my heart and my guts are are anchored in in this like swirling sea i feel this deep anchor of faith that everything's going to be okay i saw a bumper sticker one time that said i don't want to spoil the ending but everything's going to be okay mm. and i love that there's a song to one of the early songs I learned to play on guitar is by David Wilcox, uh, not the rock and roll David Wilcox, but the, um, the like a ballad singing folk David Wilcox. There's two of them. And he wrote this song that said, if someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, don't you think he'd set the stage to look as though the hero came too late? And it tells the story of love actually built this stage and built this theater but it had to stage this play to look as though the evil side is going to win so that we're all on the edge of our seats from the moment it all begins. And, but it's all, it's all for the glory of love. And it's all to show us that even in the darkness, love can show you the way. And it's just this, such a beautiful song that I've actually through this whole pandemic, I've just like keep singing to myself over and over in my head. And it really gives me peace. And it really is like, Oh yeah. I I think somebody asked Muji recently too. They're like, but why all the suffering? Why all this pain and this heartbreak? And he's like, because it makes for a good story. (laughs) So we're in it. We're in the story. And as we conclude and come to the resolution of our story that we wrote in grade seven, if we were the ones writing this, I would say that it's got many sequels and each of those sequels will have their own piece of challenge. And like, what are we going to do with all of these ripe peaches in our utopia that we've built (laughs) or something? There are surely other problems to deal with, like than rotting peaches, but what are like, it's the world is our oyster the the universe this is our canvas our blank canvas and i think that this like the idea of splitting realities really sort of makes sense to me because mm. your paradise might look different than my paradise one person's happy ending might look different than somebody else's happy ending and we're coming into our awareness now i think individually and and collectively that we are very much the creators of our experience and of our reality. And it's not that we can control what happens to us, but we can control our reaction within within that experience, which actually can create heaven on earth. So you see like even the people that have gone through the most hardship sometimes, you know, quadriplegic sitting there having lost everything that makes us 
you know, bipedal humans, and they're full of joy, mm. full of generosity, and so connected to spirit. And like, so we see so many times that it is not your circumstance, it is not your privilege, it is not your wealth, or even your family that dictates whether you live in heaven or hell. It is your, it's your choice. And to even know that you have a choice, I recognize that is also a privilege and also a learned practice, but baby steps. Yeah. You know, somebody cuts you off in traffic. How do you react? What about the perspective of, oh, wow, that guy must be having a hard day. Wonder what he's in a rush to. Mm-hmm. I hope he gets there safe. You know, like there's, there's opportunity in every day in every moment of how we react. And so I think that even though this story is still reaching its climax and we're going to see a lot of OMG moments and like the bewildering moments are still surely coming, even the scary, painful moments, I'm, I do not doubt, are still coming. It's still a moment-to-moment basis of choosing heaven on earth Mm. while still acting with integrity, doing what we can for the collective good, doing what we can for those we love, doing what we can for our own body and therefore our own environment and nature, still taking care of business in that way and showing up and relaxing into the moment and trusting and appreciating and feeling the sun on our face and enjoying that glass of water because mm. we're there. There's always going to be sequels. Mm. Yeah. That felt like literally the Phoenix rising from the ashes, like <laughs> making art with the chaos or the lead or heaviness or darkness. It, it all wants to alchemize into something and we can make art with it, or we can make suffering with it. It's Mm -hmm. it's usually a a perspective or just like you said, a choice for sure. With that, what is your art process look like kind of from like the beginning moments? Like, does it start with a, a little knowing from God or like a little pang and then all the way through to the, the end result that we get to experience on the other side? Yeah, it is fun. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Like it's, it often will start with, like you say, just this like subtle little idea. And sometimes it comes as I'm just falling asleep or as I'm cooking or driving or doing something else. A lot of the time though, these ideas do come while I'm making other art. So I believe in this, like the channel of, each person being this vessel or this conduit for creativity and for inspiration. And when you open that, like imagine yourself as a big garden tap, you open that channel and let it start letting it flow, whether that's through dance or through any kind of creativity, 
um, or embodied movement or flow, um, when you open that, it allows a whole lot more through. And so the, uh, the concept of artist blocks to me is like a self-perpetuating myth. Mm. It's o- it only exists because we say it exists. And then we sit there with our arms crossed, staring at a blank canvas, grumpy, all saying like, where's my inspiration? See, I'm blocked. Like, <laughs> of course you're blocked with that attitude. Creativity probably hates that shit. Like, get, do something, make something, dance, make a mess, make a cake, whatever you need to do. Draw in your driveway, draw in the sand, draw with your lipstick on your face. It doesn't matter. Just do something. And when we do that, we can flush it through. So when that's my long way of saying (laughs) my ideas come from being in action, being in creativity most times. And sometimes it's through meditation and driving very much is that or dancing or whatever that is. But, and as the idea sort of crystallizes, it just feels, I just feel it in my body. I, um, it just sort of lands like, um, like a soft thud. Mm. And I may sketch it just quickly in my sketchbook so that I can retain the idea. Um, or I might just pull out a canvas in that moment, or I might keep turning it over in my mind's eye and see if I can allow it to take shape a little bit more. Um, But however much it's crystallized, when it feels like it's time to move on it, I do. And um, sometimes at the detriment of the 10 unfinished paintings in my studio, I will pull out a fresh new canvas and I'll start. And it, um, it's those early sessions on the canvas that really are the most fun. It really is like the painting with your whole body and seeing it happen very, very quickly. It's, uh, it's like building a house. You know, it happens very quickly at first. You're like, build a foundation. All of a sudden the walls go up and there's windows cut out and there's a roof on it and you put the windows on and you're like, it's like all happens very quickly. And people are like, wow, your house is almost finished. And then you're like, no, no, no. I still have like 90% of the work to do is finish carpentry. Mm-hmm. And painting is like that. So after that initial excited, splashy, energetic flow, flow process, um, then I sit down and get to work. And that part is also fun, um, but more so it's a meditation. It has to be a meditation because it is tedious sometimes. And it just, just moves forward. Every brush stroke is a brush stroke forward. And there's sometimes, like, I'm working on a piece right now that has, uh, how many? seven figures and like 22 hands and every square inch of the canvas is either covered in hands faces or interweaving hair of multiple varieties and when I started that painting I thought it was just gonna be three figures and it was gonna have a lot of negative space and abstract just soft nothingness behind it and then as the ideas were coming for it I was just like, oh, okay, it's actually going to be covered in detail. Every inch of this canvas is going to be highly detailed. 
And every inch that I work on is an inch forward. And I have Mm -hmm. to just keep coming back into that meditation and that peace with the process. Because if I liken it to life, you know, a painting process, why would I rush it? Well, we rush it just so we can get to the weekend. We rush it just so we can get to Christmas holidays or summer holidays. Or we rush it so we can get to retirement. What are we rushing for? We're just rushing towards the grave, ultimately. And so if I can come back into the moment with the painting process and just like actually just enjoy the tedium of it, enjoy the way that the brush draws across the canvas, enjoy the music that I'm listening to, or the smell of the cedar burning beside me or this the flicker of the candle or the podcast that I'm listening to or the way the sunlight's coming through the window, you know, just enjoy that while keeping my butt in that chair and my paintbrush in my hand and just keep doing the work and, and find that balance of presence and meditation so that I can just keep showing up. And ideas come, as I said, as I'm working, new ideas come and epiphanies come for paintings. And sometimes they're these like lightning striking, like, oh my goodness, that's the answer for this piece. Yes. And sometimes I'm just sitting there with question marks and saying, what is the answer for this piece? And I need to actually just work on what I do now. I, I believe, I don't believe in weighing pros and cons in life or in art of sitting there with lists of like, should I take this job or not? Or should I make this move or not? I really think that that is bypassing our most fundamentally knowing and wise and tuned in part of our body. So if we don't know in our body, if it's not obvious what to do, work on what you do know, Mm. or just make a decision. And, and, you know, if, if it's time, but usually when it's time, we do know. And we might argue with it logically in our mind. And I've definitely argued with my paintings of just like, oh, I don't want to cover every inch with hair or I don't want to paint over this, this half of the painting that I've just spent three days working on, but it feels right. And I know it's right. And so I'm going to trust that. And I've never been let down by that, by that knowing and by that faith in the process not once feels like that story that we're living on the earth you know this we're on the edge of edge of our seats like you spoke about the you know the kind of hero's journey that the world's going through just that trust and faith in the process and love will always meet us on the other on the other side of that, I think I've seen glimpses of that painting with the hair and the figures. <laughs> it looks stunning. So stunning. What's the message behind that one? Is there like a, a message that usually underlies most of your work? Sometimes the messages uh, elude me until they're complete. And sometimes they actually, it's only months later that it all sort of clicks into place. It really can be a sort of hindsight understanding mm. um, because these pieces are so much born in, in just a state of trust, like really that balancing left brain, right brain, that like 
trust, faith, get out of the way, balanced with the show up, focus, do the work. Um, it's they're born from that nexus point. And so I don't, I try not to get too worked up about what it means in the moment. Sometimes I, I muse about it and sometimes they do have very clear messages. Um, but yeah, it's often later. This one though, has been, it's been interesting. I've, it's, it's all these figures sort of curled onto the central figures in sort of support, rest, um, comfort, adoration, uh, meditation. I, it's, it's like this, this sort of mandala that's formed out of the figures. And, and so I've, I've known it has something to do with community. It has something to do with connection. They are all women. So it's very much femininity. Um, but then it's been, I've been really curious about it because the central figure is the only one with her eyes open looking forward and everybody else has their eyes closed. And so this one actually I've, I've tentatively titled my mom and I have mused. My mom loves to help me name paintings. Um, we've mused about the name of this one and the name that I've come to and that we've settled on is, um, uh, oh, now it's just eluding me now. Atma. Mm. Atma is um, the Sanskrit word for, um, for like the seat of the soul or the soul or pure light ether. Um, and so I've named it Atma, the guide of souls. And so to me, she is sort of the, the anthropomorphized or embodied representation of our soul's guide, our soul's steward. And all of the figures around her maybe are different incarnations or maybe it's soul family, but she has quite an illuminated third eye and her hair is woven into the pine cone pineal gland motif. Um, and over her heart is glowing ether under her hands. Um, whereas everyone else just has a very small pinpoint third eye illuminated. And then they're all woven together. So to me, it's sort of, it feels like she's ushering them or feeding them or, or like encouraging or guiding them somehow mm. i'm still figuring it out <laughs> it's uh yeah it's it's an interesting process and she's just they're just sitting there just watching me and i work on them in between other paintings and i keep starting new paintings and being like oh man i gotta get back to atma uh, because she's just like staring at me um but it's also a really daunting piece because it's just so much tedium and i love a fresh canvas every once in a while so they definitely tend to jump on my canvas onto my easel and start some new paintings you weave in and out <laughs> in, and out, yeah. in and out of all the all the different pieces that you're creating so atma i love that and one of your one of my most favorite paintings of yours is tanha is that mm -hmm. and they're both sanskrit words is that correct mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting they have they have very akin titles um which is unusual but uh, yeah tanha um, it's the subtitle of that is Tanha, the dance of longing. 
um, Tanha is, is about that sort of that um, bodily, that physical longing, aching. Um, maybe it's the aching for beloved, aching for belonging. Um, and that painting I, I created, I painted while I was teaching in Vienna in Austria. And um, I painted that on my free time in my evenings and weekends um, between classes. And it was at the same time, it was a few years ago. Um, it was at the same time as the, those massive forest fires in California. Um, some of the many, but this was that particularly bad. I think it was 2019 or 2018. Mm -hmm. It was a very, very intense fire season. And uh, I have a lot of friends and, and community in California. And, um, and it really, I was really feeling them and feeling that community and feeling those beautiful forests and those, those hillsides and really mourning with the world. Um, this, the like intensity of the loss and friends who lost everything and barely got out just wearing their pajamas. Mm. Um, and so that was sort of like the initial planted seed was this like this fire. And the two figures dancing to me sort of represent the, like you could say masculine, feminine, or, um, control and wildness or humanity and nature like it, it it doesn't really matter what labels you give those two dancers they are sort of all of those and this idea that we we just want to hold and 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 name and contain whatever it is that's wild within us or within the world we wanted to put those fires out. We wanted to control them. We want to control the world. We want to, you know, dam the rivers and cut the forests and, and can, you know, control the wild parts of ourselves that might say something stupid or might want to dance on a table or move to a strange foreign land or quit our job or whatever it is. We want to, we want to hold that and contain it and, and we see it in relationships and in relationship with ourselves and society um, trying to control, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the parents telling the child, get a real job, mm. like, you know, calm down, be quiet, be of, be of service, be a part of society, you know, and that's, I think that that's a big part of why so many people are, are pressured um, out of their creative path. It's, it's like, or go into college before you even know who you are. And then you get in debt. And then you spend your life trying to pay off the student loan for this degree you don't even want. You don't even want to do. Like It's just this like control stifle put out the fire and then this like other part of us that is this like yearning sheep because that wild feminine also 
loves the like containing solid focused vessel of the masculine and so there's this like pushing and pulling at the same time and he's holding her but he's also on fire and she's like longing for freedom and longing to burn but also embracing him um so yeah it's it's a fascinating dance that i think we all can relate to um in multiple levels in multiple ways and um and ultimately i think it's it's the paradox of life both have to exist we can't just throw away that part of ourselves that wants order and focus and that like grounded fulfillment just to be a wild vagabond you know mm. we might try that on for a little while but ultimately we all want to be of service and we all want to belong and in some way we need to find grounding and then we also can't just live the other way we can't just be focused and do a career that sucks our soul that we don't love that we don't feel any passion for and and live in a gray building in a gray apartment and even though i love gray <laughs> you know we can't just we can't just deny that wildness in us for the sake of safety and order and so both have to find their place and so i think that there are many different ways that we can find our balance point and those that balance point is going to fluctuate from day to day from moment to moment from year to year but it's it's like whether you if you work in a cubicle then how do you balance that are you part of an ecstatic dance group on the weekend do you go and like get sweaty and dance your butt off or if you are part of you know if you do that every day if you are uh an avid ecstatic dancer um do you how do you balance that do you take care of your grandmother do you design websites do you volunteer at the soup kitchen like how do you balance these this part that longs for wildness and this part that longs for order because they both it's in breath out breath mm. it's masculine feminine it's intuition and focus and they both need each other gardens are the most abundant when we work with the wildness of the land and also cultivate these plants so that they're even more beautiful and even more abundant than if we just let them go feral but they can't be sterilized we need to really work within the ecosystem and it's all about balance feels like that inner union within of the wild and the containment and i know on my own journey i've gone really into those wild ways and super in my feminine and and i'm just yearning for this containment but that i've been super contained in the structures you know and so it is that like dancing with the polarities that are within us 
to allow our, our external world to reflect. And I love about your paintings and you probably receive stories. Do you receive stories of what other people Mm. see in it? You know, because there's probably, we, we would take our own medicine from it when we look at it. And so it's so interesting to see, see how we each alchemize it differently and, and what we um, pull from it. And I, I definitely receive that like dance of the masculine and the feminine and, and the beloveds. I got a twin flame mm-hmm. um, nudge from it. I don't know if they're the twin flames. Whenever you see anything about twin flames, it's got those colors of the blue and the orange as well. Oh. So I was like, that's so interesting. It was just so interesting what uh what pulls in when people receive art and and allow it to kind of ignite something in their soul mm-hmm. with myth and and also actually like the sanskrit piece um is that that would be like the teachings from india is that fair to say like the sanskrit words pulling that have teachings from india been a big part of of your journey not specifically, actually, those names, sometimes the names come so easy. And sometimes they're really an interesting process of patience. Mm. And so it often, um, I think both of those names actually came from just looking into, you know, I had like the idea of the soul. I was like, okay, it's the soul. And so I was looking up the soul and ideas and different um different mythologies, different um, schools of thought around the soul or around this longing or around these, these various ideas um, with those, specifically those two pieces and came across those words and they just felt right. And right along with the subtitles because I could, I could say, oh yeah, that painting's Tanha. And that doesn't really give most people much to go on but if I say it's tanha the dance of longing and we can I call it tanha just casually but tanha the dance of longing gives them a point of entry and a point of curiosity and when I name paintings I try not to tell people too overtly what to think Mm. these are mirrors and these mirrors will ultimately reflect the viewer back to them. So I try not to be too specific when, when naming them or even being too specific with symbolism. And so that's why when you ask me about the meaning of, of that specific piece of Tanha, then it's, you know, it could be any one of those things but there are themes at play um, and there's an obvious longing and pushing and pulling happening. But beyond that, how you choose to take it, if it, if to you it's twin flames, then that's absolutely what it is. Mm. It's not up to me to say what that should mean to you. It's just, uh, you know, we all look at a sunset and, and translate that into our own bodies and get something different out of it. It might bring up different memories. It's we all overlay our own experience on what we see. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's perfect. And that's why when you ask of the meaning of paintings, it's like, they still keep teaching me and I, 
years later, people will talk about a piece and they'll give me a new perspective on it. And it just sort of fine tunes and, and enriches my own experience of that painting. It's a new perspective. It's like these paintings are never finished. They're only just echo. They echo on and on and they keep unfolding through every, every time they're looked at because it might mean something totally to you in a year from now than it does now. So it's, it's really this living organism in a way that just continues. It's like the trees, the trees are always unfolding and and showing us different things and whispering different things to us and teaching us different, um, yeah, different layers. There's so much, so many layers to it. That's beautiful. And you've got a piece right behind you that I'm like staring at out of the corner of my eye (laughs) of the masculine. And um, I know there's beautiful paintings that you have of Yeshua, Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And they look very different from the paintings that we might see from different systems of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And so do those pieces, you know, there's, there's teachings beyond every structure that we have on this planet. There's teachings that go deeper. And so your reflections of Jesus and Mary Magdalene look like those deeper, the layers that are deep beneath the structures and the systems, if that makes any sense. And so have those kind of more deeper layers played a big part in your life and your like faith and spirit and trust. And then how do those visions come to you? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I grew up Christian in a Christian household. Um, My grandfather was a minister and I spent most of my youth singing in the worship team and being on stage and being a part of it and Bible study and all that jazz. I was also um, a pretty free thinker, so I was simultaneously doing my own thing and being a teenager and partying and dancing and had my fake ID and did all that fun stuff and had multiple different different kinds of groups of friends. Um, And throughout it all, even when I was the most entrenched in the church, I always held this this criticism of the system of the church and this like curiosity and this question that I used to have like debates with my family or debates with my youth pastor or whatever of just like, so how come, because I was born into this family, into this body, into this family who happens to like know and love Jesus that I like just get this free ticket to know and love Jesus. Therefore I get to go to heaven. But what about the kid that's born in like Uruguay and doesn't get to know, like, isn't, doesn't know about Jesus. He's going to hell. Mm. And that just does not make sense. And don't you think that the people in all these different countries and all these different faiths believe just as strongly that their, their connection to God is the true connection to God. And what makes us like think that we're right and they're stupid? It just doesn't make sense to me. And don't you think that 
maybe we're all just saying the same thing. Mm. Like if God is this big, omnipotent, eternal being, this consciousness, do you think he gives a shit what we call him? It, they, like some cute little name, like, oh no, you have to spell God with a capital or, oh no, you have to pronounce God like God or like whatever, or like give it all these different names. And I just was bewildered by that. of just like, why do we have to argue about semantics? We're just talking in different accents and languages. And the whole mission of Jesus, if we want to, you know, believe that Jesus existed, sure, it doesn't even matter. Like, I don't even know if I believe that Jesus existed. It feels irrelevant to me. What feels relevant is the symbol, the archetype, the, the teachings of Yeshua, of this, of this incredible template for humanity. That's what feels important. And his whole thesis was the kingdom of God is within you. So if I can really tune into that, then what are we arguing about? And why can't we just trust our hearts? live by the law of love and live with compassion and you know of service and celebration and and why is why do we have to fight all the time and so i i really when i started these paintings i didn't know i was going to paint jesus by the way mm-hmm. <laughs> um uh, I started actually with Mary Magdalene because I've been learning over the past many years about, um, you know, the, the teachings of Mary Magdalene and the, the Magdalene manuscripts and um, all of these, these like these stories and these documents are coming to the surface. And in 2016, Vatican officially apologized um, for calling her a whore for hundreds of years and um, officially named Mary Magdalene feast day and sainted her. And so I've just been fascinated by this, by this um, healing of the feminine, by this reconciliation of, of the other half of Christ consciousness. And it sort of puts into place, like it all sort of clicks and starts to make sense. The more we dive into the stories of, of like the missing books of the Bible and, and um, the, the fact that Mary Magdalene was from the temple of Isis. She was a high priestess and she was actually quite wealthy. And she maybe speculated that she funded the mission of Jesus and, and that she bore his children and that through their tantric marriage, they together created Christ consciousness and that just like the in-breath and the out-breath, no one can live without the other. And, and that just felt so true and so right to me. And so I really wanted to honor her. And I really wanted to portray her as a mother, as an empowered, beautiful, dark-skinned woman, as she 
surely was if she walked on the earth. And um, so as I started to paint this piece, um, I, it just kept unfolding. I didn't know she was gonna be holding the baby, baby Sarah that's embedded in the roses. I just started. I just, um, my friend uh, had a beautiful photo that she had posed for. I asked her if she could, um, if she would give me permission to use it. I checked in with the photographer and I started going from there, just the face. And then the rest, um, I just pieced together my own photography and, and it just elaborated. And the whole time I had this question of what is she looking at? You know, it's interesting that she's like looking to the left so she's like looking back if we think of like forward and backward as far as the way that we like typically portray forward and backward. And she's looking, she's looking off the canvas. At first I thought, well, maybe I should put something on the canvas that she's looking at. But she looks quite contemplative. She looks alert. She looks peaceful, but also like there's a strength and an awareness, like a um, almost an alarm in her look. And then I realized, oh, she's looking at her beloved. Of course she is. Oh shit, I gotta paint Jesus. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me about a year and a half to sort of muster the will to dive into that. And not because the painting itself was daunting, um, but because of everything that came with that, of all, it felt like I had to sort of swim to the surface of all of the weight of culture and religion and stories and hundreds and thousands of years and my own upbringing and my family and this culture that I live in and this land that I live on and the residential schools that or in this land and the, just the heartbreak worldwide that the church has, has caused and all of the stories that each person that would look at this painting would bring and lay at the feet of this painting, either willingly or not. And it just felt huge, but it also felt like I needed to do that. And so I just kept it in my mind. And um, at one point I was talking to a friend and uh, it just like clicked in my mind um, that he would be the perfect Jesus model. And not that he looked like I thought necessarily exactly, but there was like this, this like soul, this tone, this gentleness and lovingness in his face. And again, he was dark skinned. And so it just felt like that's okay. That's my starting point. And so I asked him, I said, how's your relationship with Jesus? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you probably thought I was going to start preaching. Um, and so he agreed graciously to be my model. And um, from there, I just started the piece. And I wanted to paint it life size. So they're both life size, as if we were standing in front of them as a mirror. I wanted to paint him as a mirror, as a reflection to the viewer. 
And I wanted to paint him looking straight on so that when we stood in front of this canvas, that we would see ourselves reflected back. Because in his words, we are the, chil- we are the children of God. I am the child of God. And so if, if, if there was anything that I could do to help clarify at least my interpretation of his message, it was to, to maybe attune his ethnicity more appropriately, for one, to make him a reflection of our own divinity and to make him approachable and to make him sexy Mm. and to make him alive and relatable. Nobody can relate to a God sitting on high or like a king sitting on a throne, but we can relate to an open-handed, bare-chested, vulnerable, quietly smiling, handsome, glowing man, emanating love. And so that's what I wanted to do. It's like looking at it, you do get that reflection of love. Like he just has such a presence to him of love reflecting right back at you. And yeah, I love that story. I got goosebumps so many times <laughs> when you shared that story and just speaking to, is it the book, the Magdalene manuscript? Yeah, there's multiple now. There's a lot of books coming out, but yeah, the Magdalene man- manuscripts and um, yeah. Tom Kenyon. Uh, yeah, there's, yeah. Mm, there's that's a whole... such a beautiful book that just speaks to the union. It just reminds me of Tanha. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that the dance of the masculine and the feminine, their beautiful tantric union that brought his message to life and his healing and and both of their healings to Mm -hmm. life. But it was the, the union of the two, which is so powerful and beautiful. Does myth play into just like myth and, and folk tales and story and all of that kind of stuff? Does that play into your art as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, Probably in more subtle ways. It's not very often that I'll start a piece that is like concretely depicting a myth. Mm. Um, It's usually more abstract and maybe it might circle back to like, maybe I have an inspiration and then I go on the journey and then it circles back. I did do one. um, There's a, a beautiful African woman with honeybees and she's pregnant and there's honey dripping down her. And that was originally inspired by Ushun. It's the goddess of, uh, of sweet water and mm. abundance. And she's one of the Orishas from Africa. Um, and, and that actually, as I didn't know the name Ushun when I started the piece, I, I just had this, this like flash of a, of a concept of like ebony skin, luminous yellow dripping honey abundance and so I I just started describing that to a friend as I was about to start a a live painting I was in Connecticut and uh and she was like oh like Oshun and I was like huh and I looked it up and I was like oh yes okay very much like Oshun and so that that sort of um 
inspired into the process. But it was, yeah, it's like these these archetypes, these stories, these myths, these like, I read a lot of Greek mythology growing up. Um, I also grew up on Lord of the Rings and the Narnia series and Monty Python and like the Bernstein bears and like all of these things <laughs> that, that, that like feed into our, our internal culture that is cultivated and that's like a living organism. And so it's hard to know because all of those stories, like even Lord of the Rings and Narnia series and these, they're all maybe not so much in the Monty Python scheme, but, but (laughs) these like grand um, adventures stories, they're also based on myths and a lot of like, as we know, Tolkien spent decades researching and he was a librarian first and foremost. And he like he dove into the worlds of myths. And, and I read a lot of Joseph Campbell and Carolyn Miss and like a lot of these authors growing up. And they just, it just like seeped in there. And so it comes out, you know, it comes out in subtle ways um, that, that all inform my my creative process but it becomes more intuitive i did one recently of um i wanted to play on the theme of forbidden fruit and so i all i knew was it was uh, this sort of sassy woman eating an apple or a peach and that was all i knew and then from there it evolved and i started to started to really um look into and meditate on the concept of forbidden fruit and forbidden fruit, how it shows up in different cultures and different myths and different legends and, and storylines. And then also like, okay, well, what is forbidden fruit to you? And what is forbidden fruit to me? And is forbidden fruit, is it knowledge or is it sexuality? Is it natural medicine? Is it creativity? Like what is the forbidden fruit? And what is the, what is the nourishment that we are denying ourselves or we are being denied? by not partaking in that forbidden fruit is it a poison is it truly a poison that we are being protected from or we're protecting ourselves from or is there something else going on that is um that is limiting our experience or limiting our our depth of of understanding our depth of feeling and depth of living and so i wanted to play on that and so then in into that painting wrapped in um stories of Persephone with her pomegranate and um, cherry blossoms um, as like speaking from J- Japan and and then the poppies of the opium and the opioids and like all the, the like push and pull and ancient mystery around that and then um, present day tragedy around that. And, um, and she's like showing half a nipple and so there's sexuality and there's the sass and there's like the lemon uh halo in behind is like the the natural remedies lemon being one of the most powerful um anti-cancer treatments and like and how you know maybe pharma has stifled the research into natural remedies for you know their own gains whether they be material or sinister or whatever, it doesn't really matter, but it's like, um, well, it matters, but it's, 
it's like (laughs) all of those things, the strawberry, just being the sweetness of life, the simplicity of life. And so it has all of these fruits. It just like kept going again. I thought it was going to be a simple painting of just a woman eating an apple, but it ended up being like a whole mandala of fruit and, um, and seeing how each one of those fruit actually represent a different version of forbidden fruit. Hmm. Beautiful. I remember seeing that painting and there's a lot of fruit in that and it, it does, it speaks to the juiciness and the ripeness and lushness of life and the blossoming and just the fertility that is within humans, women, the earth as this like life-giving sustenance that is so, so beautiful. Hmm. What has been your, your biggest lesson along the way? Well, my paintings teach me on a daily basis, brushstroke by brushstroke. They definitely um, are a reflection to me of how I show up in the world and how I walk through this life. Um, if I am being hasty, if I am being, uh, if I'm procrastinating, if I am being self-critiquing or judgmental, if I'm um, being afraid of risks, it just shows up again and again on the canvas in front of me and mirrors it back to me. So it really has taught me so much and continues to teach me so much. And when I teach um, workshops or retreats, it's, that's the main lesson is that this is this canvas is a mirror to you and so what are you being shown and and that's what i've really been so grateful for in my life is of this creative process uh, that it's been a lifelong teacher it's like my strictest most ruthless teacher and it's also my like most loving friend and safest sanctuary Um, so all are true, both are true. And as far as like large epiphany moments, I don't know. I was thinking, I was thinking recently about something that happened when I was a child, actually, I was in, in kindergarten and, um, it's rel it's unrelated to painting, but it's stuck with me as a visual template and as a, as like that nexus point on the scale of polarities. And so what happened is growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. Our family lived pretty scarcely. Um, And so we didn't really get new things. There was a lot of hand-me-downs and thrift stores. We never went hungry and we were never without shelter. So we were incredibly blessed in that way. And I was always shown love. So I was spoiled and abundant in love and warmth. Um, But I definitely got excited on the very rare occasions of getting something brand new. And in kindergarten, I got a purple raincoat. And I was so excited. I think my aunt and uncle bought it for me, this like long purple raincoat. It was like classic, obvious purple, just like bubblegum purple. And on the inside, it had a hood, and on the inside, it had um, purple plaid flannel. And I was so excited. I was so proud of this jacket. I just was like, I'm going to go to school. I'm just beaming. 
And it was just this little school. There was like 25 students and <laughs> this tiny little school. And at recess, the first day wearing this purple raincoat, I was standing on the sidewalk and there was this boy and we were like teasing each other or something. And he pushed me and I sort of like trip fell backwards. Like, I don't think he was being overly bullying or horrible. He was just being a dumb boy. Mm -hmm. And I was being a clumsy girl who probably had a crush on him. And I tripped on the little like um, gutter ledge and fell in the little tiny gutter that was between the sidewalk and the road and got muddy water all up inside my purple raincoat. And I remember the devastation, feeling this like soul crushing sorrow, embarrassment, mm. grief, just this like, oh, it felt like my world was ending. And even in that moment, I remember watching myself like throw a tantrum. I was not a very emotional child. I, I did not, I'm still not very emotional. I live a pretty like, cruisy equilibrium but I was just devastated and watching myself like throw this tantrum probably also so that he would feel really bad and take pity on me and you know and um but just like being so amused at myself because as we all knew as children there are ch children starving in Africa how could I possibly be so upset over a stupid raincoat and that moment of awareness has stuck with me my whole life. And I think of it, I actually like, I call it my purple raincoat. So it's like, you know, something will happen. I'm like, oh, purple raincoat. Because both, both extremes, both perspectives were totally valid in that moment and remain totally valid. And they, it's the paradox. It's the paradox of life. And so I, I think of that, I think of, okay, here's this little girl with her limited experience, with her sheltered, loving family in this tiny town, you know, that being pushed over by a silly boy and getting mud on the inside of your brand new raincoat is like the extreme experience for this little child. And so... I could try to argue with myself and, you know, bring the logic in and say, don't cry. There are people that are way worse off and, and stifle that emotion. Or I could sink into despair and say, oh, you're right. Life is horrible. But neither are truly, neither are true. And both are true. So I think of that as like an example of the importance to feel deeply, to experience what's going on, to cry when we need to cry, and to keep the, the other part of ourselves, maybe there's this like the witness inside, to keep ourselves in check of keeping gratitude, keeping awareness, that we are so blessed and that there's always going to be somebody that's better off and worse off than we are. So comparison is not going to serve us and neither is 
navel gazing, myopic feeling. We have to do both. We have to keep our awareness of what's going on in the world and how privileged we are. And when stuff comes up, feel it. And don't try to talk ourselves out of feeling deeply. It's okay to cry when your cat dies, even if your best friend just lost their dad. It's okay to cry. But if we try to argue with ourselves and say, who am I to feel deeply when that person's suffering more, then we're just denying our emotion and it's turning to poison in our body. But also, you know, have a good cry, pull your socks up and go comfort your friend who just lost her dad. Hmm. Both are true. So yeah. I'd say that my purple raincoat's been one of my biggest teachers of my a life. Big teacher. <laughs> <laughs> one day I'll paint a painting of the purple raincoat. <laughs> the purple raincoat. <laughs> <laughs> That's a powerful teacher. It can all coexist. All of it's valid. Both the, yeah. Well, how do you experience the mysteries? Mm. Well, I get to watch worlds come to life on canvas in front of me. Just pretty freaking cool. That is pretty it's cool. A mysterious psychedelic experience of unfolding and manifestation. I get to be a part of this co-creation with spirit and with paint and with inspiration and with whatever environment I'm in to um, to bring something into existence that didn't exist before and becomes a portal for other people to step into and learn about themselves. And so that's pretty mysterious. Mm. And I don't claim to understand why or how or what or any of the big W questions. I, I also don't need to question why in the pit of my belly and in my bones and in my every waking moment I have this drive this like push to create when some people are marching in the streets and some people are working in homeless shelters and some people are raising children or farming the land or there's there's so many different ways that we can show up in this world and sometimes I wonder like oh should I be putting my time like paintings take a lot of time and it's like hundreds of hours that I put in and should I spend hundreds of hours like you know watchdogging articles and being a whistleblower on corruption or like marching in the streets or graffitiing walls to bring awareness and be in protest or like there's so many different ways Mm -hmm. and I just keep coming again and again back to the knowing in my body and in my spirit that I'm exactly where I need to be doing exactly where I need to be and doing exactly what I need to be doing. And this is my activism. This is my contribution. This is my service to, to humanity and the world and the evolution of consciousness in my small part, even though I'm just smearing colorful mud around on a piece of fabric, making pretty pictures, it feels really trivial if I think about it with my brain but if i think about it with my whole being it's perfectly where i am 
supposed to be. And yeah, I can't question that. It's mysterious. It's, I also, I love mystery. I love not knowing how big the universe is or how many times we can split apart an atom. I think that is like so unnecessary to, to even question. I think it's so cool. Like, Ooh, like what does God look like? That's like, it doesn't, it's not an interesting question. What's an interesting question is like, how does that sunset make you feel? And if you were to dance that feeling, what would that look like? Or, you know, when you look in the eyes of your children, how would you translate that love into a meal or into a painting? Like, that's fascinating to me. Mm. So, like, let them let the big mysteries of like that other stuff, let the expensive mysteries <laughs> stay mystery and spend that money on, you know, more practical things like food and art supplies for people that need them. <laughs> mm, yes. Yeah. Water, water. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It feels like you being that channel for the mysteries to, to breathe through you, to create through you. And just coming back to earlier on in the conversation, like, we all come here with these gifts that want to be birthed through us. And oftentimes we're separated from them. And it's like you just allowing that process to alchemize and move through you, which is such a, such a gift to the world. How do you root into the self? Mm. I think it's just those little moments. I, I am also my own biggest distractor and and biggest push driver. Um, I can easily forget to take moments of breath and forget to smell the roses as I walk past them. Um, but usually not. I, I really find that because the creative process demands patience. I'm, I'm able to drop into the moment and patience pretty easily. Um, so that, that rooting just, it occurs. It occurs with ah, a deep breath. And just remembering that like, oh, wow, that just nourished my body in ways that I don't even understand. And I don't need to beat myself up that I wasn't breathing fully before or that I'm not going to be breathing fully again in a couple seconds when I forget again. But just to really allow the simplicity of that breath to be enough mm. or the simplicity of that bird song or that glass of water or that really good song or that really luscious paint stroke or whatever it is, a really yummy bite of food. It's really the savoring. For, for many years, my, uh, I, I hosted a women's new moon circle and um, every month it would move around and every month we would all set intentions. And 
For years, my intention every single month was spaciousness. Because I was like, oh, I'm so busy, 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 busy. And I'm busy with all of the things that I choose to do. All of the blessings in my life are busy. I'm a self-employed artist. That makes me very busy. And so I, I came to realize that actually spaciousness is a product of savoring. See, spaciousness, I had this idea that spaciousness was just going to, I was going to be able to occur in my life. Like all of a sudden I'd just be sitting on a beach without anything on my mind. And, or I'd have this meditation practice and I would meditate for hours and just have this spaciousness and the house would magically be clean. And my business stuff would magic, all my emails would magically be answered and my paintings would magically be done. And, but instead I realized, yeah, spaciousness is actually born of savoring. And savoring is born of presence. And when I can be present in the moment without grasping for a painting to be finished or for whatever to occur, then I actually just pay attention and I can appreciate and, and thoroughly feel the moment. Whether it's like at an event and you just need to go to the bathroom and like, oh, there's your, your moment. There's a spacious moment. I'm just going to breathe here for a second, even though it might not smell good in the porta potty. Or, <laughs> or I'm like, oh, I'm stuck in customs at the airport. I'm stuck in traffic on my way to this meeting that I'm late for. Like, okay, well, like pushing my spirit forward in time is not helping, actually. I need to bring it back and inhabit this moment and actually just sit here and feel my butt on the seat and know that there's nothing I can do to be out of this moment. So just savor it. And then all of a sudden, spaciousness is everywhere. And so that was really a, a good realization for me. Um, because I'll never be bored. I've never been bored. And it's all amazing things. So it's just a matter of pointing my focus and then being present with that choice. I think my most favorite part about the deep breath is when you take a deep breath or anybody takes a deep breath, it like encourages the other person to take a deep breath. And so it's like, yeah, it's like you took a deep breath in that moment. And then I took a deep breath and it's just, it's like, it spreads that like stillness and savoring the moment and just being exactly where we are. So it's such a powerful tool to give permission to others just simply in our breath. So I love that. Mm. Is there anything else that you want to add to this beautiful conversation before we close? Mm. Maybe just for anybody listening that is longing for more creativity in their life. I just want to really, really be a cheerleader of permission and to not, not be paralyzed by perfectionism, to not wait for the optimal condition, conditions or the, the best supplies or the biggest amount of 
time or the best idea or the whitest canvas to just start with something and to give yourself permission to make a mess, to have fun, to remember that we're just a tiny speck on a tiny speck hurling through space. Mm. We're, it's like it's fleeting and precious and meaningless and profound all at the same time and eternal. And so whatever we do with this moment, it doesn't need to be some big, lofty, important masterpiece. If, if our spirit is calling us to create, it can be anything. And just to really savor the process, to dig in and get your hands dirty, and to have fun, and to know that even if it's not something that you share with the world, or even if it's something that you end up burning, or if you're drawing in the sand and the tide comes and takes it away, and you realize you didn't have your phone to take a photo to do a social media post mm -hmm. and share the share with the world, like whatever it is, however fleeting it is, it's all fleeting anyways. So don't get hung up on whether it lasts for five minutes or five centuries. Doesn't really matter. The the important thing is that you followed your spirit's urging to express creativity through your own unique channel. It's just only you can dance like you. Only you can make an omelet like you do or make a painting like you do. Only you can sing like you do. So just do it. Make a mess. Make something beautiful. Make something ridiculous. Just do it. Hmm. That's powerful. Making a, a mess or making art with the mess of life, the holiness of life, all of it. It's a gift. Well, thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. It'll be in the show notes where everybody can experience your beautiful art and medicine and magic that you're birthing in the world on this earth. So thank you. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a really wonderful conversation. I really appreciate what you're doing in the world to uplift and empower and help cultivate healing and your listeners and in the community at large. Thank you so much for joining me for an episode of the Phoenix Rising podcast. Please like, share, download, subscribe if you enjoyed this episode. And I will see you next week for another episode on the Phoenix Rising podcast. Sending so much love.